Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But Carl, when I'm just trying to get my cashews from the pantry and you walk up to me trying to chat shit about the new future album, like that, that's really fucking annoying. Hola, welcome to episode two of Absolutely Not, the podcast dedicated to debunking and exposing all things absolutely incorrect. I'm your host, Leanna Lupin. While it seems many Americans are waking up for the first time to the very real and inextricable racism of this country, it feels like they, or perhaps more accurately we, are scrambling to make sense of how it could all be this messed up. Yet, there's a part of the population that is 0% surprised, and quite frankly, they're understandably exhausted by our nascent astonishment. In today's episode, I talked to three of my best friends since college about being black men in America. Otra vez, we have some strong language coming up, so be advised. Alright, let's do it. Hi friends, welcome to Absolutely Not. Thank you for joining me. Um, will you all just go ahead and introduce yourselves and anything you think listeners should know about you or your identities for, for some context for today? Yeah, sure. Uh, hi, I'm Yub. I'm 25 years old. I'm from San Jose, California. Uh, shout out all my Habashas, Yasirski. My family's from Ethiopia. Um, and I'm feeling a little hungover. Um, yeah. Great. Thank you. Hi, I'm Julius. I'm sitting next to you. We live together in Brooklyn. Uh, I'm a 26-year-old black guy. Uh, my parents immigrated here from Rwanda, and I was raised in in Portland, Oregon, which is the whitest metropolitan city in America, and I'm heterosexual. It sounded like you said whack guy, and I was like, wow, we're just going to start there. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, there's, probably, there's probably more than no. a couple visitors that uh, are listeners that uh, I was like, all right, Julius is just going to tell you off the bat. He said, we is niggas. (laughs) Okay, Greggy? Yeah, um, I'm Greg. Uh, I am also 26 years old. I'm also a black guy. (laughs) (laughs) Biracial. My dad is Haitian. My mom is Irish and Greek. Um, I'll be 26 and a half in a week, in case anyone cares. (laughs) I'll bring you a cupcake since you're in LA. Just Leave Nick. it at your door, no contact delivery. Big rhymes, nothing less. Okay, excellent. They, can you explain what you just called me? Rhymes, for the listeners that don't know, is a, a endearing nickname that we have for Leanna. Yeah, she used to just blast Leanne Rhymes through the halls of Carmen. Yeah. These are absolute lies. I've literally listened to zero Leanne Rhymes songs in my entire oh, life. Oh, wow. You had posters all over the Switches <laughs> off as soon as she gets a podcast. Yeah, what is this? <laughs> all right, we're getting started. We're starting. We're starting. Okay, so the very first question is um, a doozy. And the question is very large, but I'm very interested to hear what you all have to say. Um, and it is, what does masculinity mean to you? How has it served you? How has it harmed you? Break it down. Yeah, I... <laughs> It's, it's a hard-hitting question to start off, for sure, but I would expect nothing less. For me, I, I think it's harder to, to draw the line of where it serves versus harms, but in terms of what it means to me, I see it kind of like this. Like, without the idea of femininity, there is no 
idea of masculinity. And since the, the two are kind of inherently linked in that way, and the fact that we live in just an undeniably patriarchal sort of society and system creates almost a duty or an obligation, I would say, for men to respect, appreciate, and, and really like uplift women and femme, femme counterparts as much as possible. So I, I really think too often like the gender-based power dynamic in our society leads to a corruption that really leads people to conflate masculinity with like toxic masculinity and, mm -hmm. and masculinity. Uh, but to me, like real masculinity is to understand that power dynamic, acknowledge it fully, but not succumb to sort of the weak behavior that it enables. And, and really, instead of making the easy choice of giving in to those temptations at the expense of women, really like making the right choice and actively seeking to uplift and empower women is kind of how I view it. So because masculinity and femininity are inherently linked like that, Mm -hmm. really like the best form or the ideal pure form of masculinity is like understanding the symbiotic nature of the two mm -hmm. and always seeking like a more harmonious coexistence I would say yeah so now everyone can see why I invited you guys onto this podcast because the first answer was, it was the purpose it was, of masculinity is to uplift femininity <laughs> I like what is masculinity and what masculinity means to me has always been a question that I ask to guide a lot of decisions I make and, and it's a bit of a, a bellwether for me to think through you know why I'm acting the way I'm acting or why I'm behaving the way I'm behaving. And the only thing I'd ever like consistently landed on is that I do think that, that women and femme identifying folks do a better job of femininity than, than, than men do of, of understanding and expressing masculinity. That's the only like conclusion I'd ever really felt comfortable expressing. Um, you know, like men, like, and I think some of that is like, is, is really codified in just stats, like men kill themselves at a rate three and a half times higher than, than women do in a lot of that space, right? And like the denial of, of any emotional vulnerability and like that really not being okay. Um, so it's always just something I've been interested in and like really tried to like be super introspective about. And I think that re like when I, when I, read and really internalized you know what greg's thought process was behind it It was really the first time I'd, I'd ever felt like wow that's kind of like an actual i was like is that right is this is this correct like that might just be the answer so yeah it's it's a huge question but like i think the real crux of it does come down to greg's point exactly which is kind of the connection and the link between femininity and masculinity and, and if you're not kind of putting that at the forefront of your understanding of it and 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 what kind of actual actions um, you take um, um, with that and in, in wielding that understanding, then then you're missing the point, you know, overall. Yeah. All right. So over this next hour, our job is, I guess, to disentangle masculinity from toxic masculinity. Everybody up for it? It'll be easy um, enough. I'm excited to see. Um, that being said, I do think like, you know, from, from even before you're born, gender is thrust upon you, so social expectations are thrust upon you. Um, so I'm curious kind of how your, you know, specific families shaped your conceptions of masculinity. I feel like so much of what I learned about femininity comes from, you know, watching women in my family and also women in my family interact with men in my family. Um, so did you kind of have to push against their beliefs or were they the ones that got you to be the good humans that you are, you know, or was it a little bit of both? So tell me, like, what did your families do in, in teaching you masculinity? 
Yeah, like, you know, so many other things in life, you know, not a straightforward answer. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I'm coming from, you know, uh, an, a Christian immigrant background uh, where my, my parents are evangelical Christians. Um, but there's also that sort of like underpinning there of the immigrant experience and the way that um, I think a lot of folks from the from Africa, uh, regardless of nation, when they move to the States, have sort of an expectation of success that's sort of prescribed for you at the moment of your birth. Um, but with all of that said, like, yeah, sure, there are definitely things that my parents did that I had to push back against or my family did because gender roles were so wholly defined. Um, there was an understanding that, you know, uh, you know, the traditional gender roles were expected. My mother cooked, my father, like, you know, primarily handled like the business stuff, um, when, when, you know, as far as money is concerned. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think, you know, as someone who's fallen outside of the church at this point, having seen some of the things that, you know, my mom and father sort of um, detailed as morals for me as a child through this Christian lens did serve a larger purpose. And that might be, you know, in the fact that, you know, my parents were, uh, unwilling and like, you know, to ever let me, you know, sexualize women or objectify women in the home. There was no sort of like conversation of around like how dating goes and whatnot. Like, you know, that can be harmful, I think, to a certain extent in that, you know, you put a young boy in a situation where now he doesn't know how to operate. But there was also, but there was just this general understanding of like how being a decent person to someone is, you know, the most important thing you can do because of like this sort of conception of like this eastern world hospitality that my parents created and to like hurt someone in some in any sort of context is like the ultimate disrespect to that culture and to that people that you come from mm -hmm. so i think it, it's 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 hard to sort of uh delineate between the two because there is this old world masculinity and machismo inherent to mm -hmm. i think a lot of habasha society here yub here a quick rundown on the phrase habasha while the term has roots in civilizations that are long gone, the phrase in the modern context is used to describe folks from Ethiopian Eritrea, especially by those of us in the Ethiopian Eritrean diaspora. So again, shout out all my habashas. Yes, Sirski. I would not be, you know, the kind of person I am as far as like I perceive myself to be without the direction that I received from them that's rooted in some um, other things that make start off as problematic, but have manifested themselves in positive yeah, I was gonna say it sounds like you you've done the work to kind of like pick and choose or pick apart the parts of what they taught you that serve kind of like the morality that you've created for yourself now. Like, would that be a yeah, yeah exactly. Like engaging yeah. with that was was like the hardest part. But um, I, yeah, I don't want to just like sit here and be like, yeah, my parents are bigots. <laughs> 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 yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, just some other context for folks who don't know the relationships uh, of, of the people that are on this call, like Greg, Yav, and myself all lived on the same floor of a dorm our freshman year. So we got to New York eight years ago and have been, you know, best friends ever since. Met Leanna that year as well, and we've all been close, but... Can't get rid of but that. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're blessed and fortunate to have Can't get rid of you, nigga. Just so Yeah, what? No, so... It was very interesting because I think back when I was, you know, 18 years old and wet behind the ears trying to make my way in the city and I got to know Greg and I got to know Yab and learn and learn about, you know, Yab's parents, you know, in particular, right? And, and Greg will know that I've said this and it's reductive, but like, I would say there's, I would say there's this Venn diagram of chill parents and African immigrant parents. 
and I think there's only two people in the middle, and they birthed me. I was raised Catholic, and I went to Catholic schools, but it didn't really drive. It was not really the fundamental, you know, underpinning of, of like our, our identity in the home. My, my, con my conception in growing up um, in understanding masculinity is very, very heavily influenced by both my parents, but especially by my dad, mm -hmm. um, because it was something I took for granted, you know, early on, but, but he really did exactly what, it's crazy, I'm, I'm literally having these thoughts right now, um, <laughs> but, but he really did what Greg kind of spoke to in that he started a small business. He didn't, my dad didn't intend to stay in the States. He just wanted to do something to send some money back home. But he knew my mom growing up. And when she came over, you know, she had been on a med school track in Rwanda. That's something she sacrificed. And so my dad's janitorial company, you know, he, he was working nights, not sleeping, right? Working and, and, and waking up after maybe an hour nap, you know, to take us to school to pick us up when my mom was in nursing school, mm -hmm. right? So he, he really, you know, in a, in a pretty straightforward way, kind of embodied and encapsulated that, that empowering of, you know, my mom specifically. Um, yeah, I was going to ask, was it explicit? Like, did he, would he explicitly say that? Or is that something that you just picked up on? Like, oh, dad's picking me up. No, no, I'm saying right thing. now, like, oh, like, uh -huh. like, based on like the conversation that we just had about masculinity, this is really the first time that I'm thinking about it in that Got context, it. right? Got like, yeah. he wasn't like, I need to do more. I need to do more because I'm the man. So I need to be the one that makes all the money. You know, like he was, my mom, my mom makes more money than my dad does. Right. Like it was, he, he did the, he did that work. And like, yeah. that work is something that I've always looked to, and he still does to this day, you know, do like, you know, physical work that, that, uh, that supported, you know, our family while my mom went to nursing school, not like she wasn't, you know, busting her ass too. But that was really, that was really, you know, kind of the guiding light for me and understanding, you know, masculinity and what I think was a really healthy way. So that's, that's like the influence that I'd say that my family had on, on my conception of masculinity and I guess where it's at today. For me, yeah. it's kind of like I, my parents got divorced when I was, I think, nine. So I was raised in the household with my mom and my two older sisters. Um, so my masculinity uh, compass, if you will, in the form of the father was always more of like a worker. And he was always hustling, like he was always working two or three jobs and just trying to like, you know, make as much bread as possible so that we could like be all right type of thing. And I always appreciated my dad for it. Um, but that, that, was, that was mostly kind of the framing of masculinity early on for me. And then the rest of the family unit, I was very much raised in like the female gaze, if you will. So <laughs> my, maybe that explains <laughs> my like definition for masculinity is so dependent on femininity. Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense thinking about your family dynamic. Influence. Yeah. And, and just jumping back in for a second here. I'm one of two and I'm the eldest and my little brother Sam's, you know, six and a half years younger than me. Um, and I just started kind of like thinking about <clears throat> how I was protective of him or whatever. And like the kinds of things that I always remember trying to like instill in him. Mm -hmm. And those things that I was instilling in him were byproducts of the things that, you know, my parents like, put onto me. Right. I think that there's like this, there's like this, um, a lot of African immigrants have this, but I think, you know, I'll speak to the Ethiopian experience in the Ethiopian community. I know a lot of Ethiopian parents have this sort of like Ethiopian sort of arrogance or whatnot about like ability and success. You know, it's, you can stem it, you can trace it back to a lot of like the perceived history of like, you know, being that one African country that wasn't colonized, whatever, whatever. Um, you know, I don't like, um, but um, you know, I, 
my parents growing up, I think a lot of the way that they, my father and my mother manifested, you know, their own influence. And I think to a certain extent, my dad really, especially, um, was reminding, you know, me in a world where like a lot of young black people are told by the education system, by what they see on TV and whatnot, that they're not good enough, that they aren't smart enough or whatever. Never in my household was that allowed even to creep in for one second. Yeah. So that like service to make sure that someone is taken care of uh, mentally, you know, constantly uplifting people with your words, holding them to a higher standard. That's a lot of what my pops uh, and you, and you tied that into masculinity like you saw that as a facet of masculinity yeah because that was my dad's that was my dad's whole thing was like having yourself holding yourself to a very like high standard yeah you know because your innate ability is there and when you fail it's not a product of like it's not a product of you not being able to do that thing it's you not giving enough effort yeah and so that sort of underlying sort of theme has been a part of my life my whole life and I had to, I remember like always talking to my little brother and trying to make sure that he understood that. And so a lot of my job growing up was, you know, trying to remind him his value, his worth and holding him to a standard because he was constantly sort of, I think, battling. And I don't really necessarily want to speak for him, but I know what I saw from him. And that was, you know, self-doubt and stuff would creep in, even though he was, you know, he's a brilliant young man. And I think that's yeah. a part of like, um, a part of like how man, a masculinity manifested in our home was like my father's insistence, you know, cause he also worked this sort of like laborious grinded out kind of job. Mm -hmm. um, cause you know, he drove cabs and stuff growing up. Um, and for him, that sacrifice was because, you know, he, he tied that sacrifice to our innate ability. He's I mean, like, the, well, the stakes were just super high for, for both you and Sam. What? But it just, it's like the stakes are super high for both you and Sam, right? And understanding yeah. what your dad is doing, the pressure is immense, I'm guessing. Exactly. But like he, he tried to combat the pressure by saying like, I know that you can handle it. That's why I'm doing this because what the fuck am I sacrificing if I right. didn't think you could do it? Because like that would undercut his entire reason to have even moved here. Right. Right. So I just want, I think it's really important to, uh, I think it's really important to ensure that like, Another thing, y'all heard me yub in Greg's background, right? And like, as long as we're talking about black masculinity and we're talking about families, like three things that we had were, to, you know, to some degree, like a, fa a, a father that we've spoken to that worked hard, that grinded, that we were able to look to, right? So, so in a lot of ways, I think when, when people who, you know, maybe don't, and, and the reason that I think it wasn't the first thing that came up, right, was that, you know, the four of us maybe have conversations where, it's sort of understood that folks takes about, you know, the deadbeat black dad and this, that, and the other are garbage for so many reasons. Okay, so quick clarification here. Julius just said that the absent black father trope is garbage and that he, Yub, and Greg have lived experience that refuted since all three of them had present fathers who helped them to become their incredible selves. But here Julius also alludes to the myriad of other reasons that the trope is pure mythology. For instance, according to the CDC, 70% of black fathers living with young children do daily activities like sharing meals, dressing them, and reading to them, compared to only 60% of white fathers and 45% of Latino fathers. Across the board, black dads do as much, if not more, than their white or Latino counterparts, regardless of whether they live with or apart from their children. This is why the absent black father trope is absolutely not true or legitimate. Okay, back to Julius. Yeah. Um, but it's important to, to understand the importance of what Yub just spoke to and that his community and his family, you know, within that community was constantly reinforcing this idea 
that you are smart, you are capable. Something that we talk about all the time is that when I think back to my time at Columbia, if you exclude athletes, as far as black men go, I can, in our grade, I can off rip and I've tried pretty hard, you know, and part of this has to do with, yeah, maybe I should have done more work to like, you know, find more, more African-American men, but full black slave descendant, non-athletes. Yeah. Um, literally one comes to mind. Yeah. Right. Which is yeah. insane because a, a school or an institution will be like 10% black. We'll be like 15% black. Right. right. We'll say that, but we start talking about actual systems of oppression and like, to the extent that you're trying to do something to combat that by, by touting these statistics, right? You're, you're not actually getting to the root of a lot of these issues, you know, without acknowledging, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay, well, I hope you guys enjoyed that happy conversation. That was relatively easy because now we're going to get into the real deal. Um, I think one thing a lot of people are curious about um, a lot of people don't know how to talk about is the black man, white woman dynamic. Um, it's something that we've all talked about before, but I, I want to get into it some more. And I'm curious what all of your thoughts are, especially because you haven't fully mentioned it, but all three of you grew up in places that were, or in schools that were predominantly white. Um, so my questions are like, why do you think people believe that black men prefer to date white women? What have been your experiences and like the evolution of your thoughts surrounding racial dynamics and dating? Who do you date? Why? Like any of these things, what, you know, break it down for me, please. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an interesting subject. It's a super dynamic subject. And, and it's, it's one that, yeah, I think about often and, and is top of mind, especially in the, I, I entered a relationship with a white woman, you know, in March as quarantine started and, you know, these protests started and yeah. you're like, ah, here I am. Like, yeah. Yeah. There's probably, so. there's probably a lot of there's probably a lot of black girls who went to Columbia like all right what's this nigga about to say <laughs> like, like but but no yeah I grew up I grew up in Portland Oregon I was I was you know one of two three black people in a in a class of 50 kindergarten through eighth grade fed into you know a high school that was obviously very very predominantly white and at those times I gotta if I'm keeping it a buck like I wasn't really thinking about you know Western beauty standards, right? Like that wasn't a phrase that I'd ever, you know, considered right. or really thought of. So as I think back on it, it's, I'm, I guess I'm disappointed in myself, right? For not actively pushing back on the idea that the most beautiful woman in the world is a white, blonde, six one, flat yeah. stock, large breasted, blue eyed, you know, supermodel in high heels. Really painting a picture for us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, if you, look at, if you look at every Revlon ad from fucking whenever Revlon started to 1999, like, that's what you're going to see. That's, that's the point. He's, ba he's backing it up with, the, with data now. That's, that's, that's all that was, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but no, but no, I, I think a lot about the opportunities kind of that I've had in my life, right? The, the majority of the people I've dated been involved with romantic, but yeah, have been have been white women or, and, and Frank, no, even more so than that, have not been black women, right? Yeah. And I don't think that I'm, I don't think that I've ever, I don't think that I've, I was disappointed in myself or even like super conscious of that yeah. until I was probably about 17 years old, mm -hmm. right? Is when I was, I was probably even at that point just saying, well, these were your circumstances. This is what you were surrounded by. And yeah. I think maybe coming to New York and going to college is when I can maybe give myself some, some flack for, for not actively you know, you know, bringing, you know, how beautiful black 
black women are and like working to understand that and appreciate that and see that you know in a in a in a real way um um i think that's that that really presented an opportunity for me to do that you know and and i and i pretty candidly did not so to actually yeah you know it sounds kind of fucked up almost to say you know go out of my way to like try i really don't want to creep into like any form of like implied fetish fetishization right. yeah that's not what it is at all right it is not nah, like you have been told and and like and, and fed something that, that that well this is what beauty is and this is what it needs to be and and that is and that was very much the way that I've that I've lived my life right and and I think actively pushing back on that is something that that I'm working to do mm-hmm. yeah I I can empathize with a lot of what Julius is saying um and it's you know it comes like it's it's hard to to unlearn these systemic or systemically reinforced narratives that we are constantly sort of fed um and especially with me like having a white mom you know if you want to get freudian or or whoever it was where it's like the the (laughs) is like the first standard of attraction or, or whatever for for a lot of people um and that coupled with the fact that you know i was kind of always uh in primarily white private schools growing up that it's it's been a a very noticeable shift in sort of like what attracts me and what i find attractive over the course of my life and it comes i think the the general trope of like oh black men prefer white women or or anything like that it, it comes when people think that it comes from a place of like so whiteness is obviously the standard and and by a lot of people unfortunately is seen as supreme and then that combined with the fact that uh, females are so regularly objectified leads to the creation of like the ideal that like the attractive white woman is like the trophy wife, holy grail, if you will. Yeah. To a lot of people, I think, whether, whether it's subconscious or conscious. And I think this leads people along like some really fucked up rationales along the lines of basically like, if the nigger can get a white woman, then he has, by association, made himself less of a nigger in the process type of thing. Yeah, I was gonna say, this is not new. This is not 20th century, 21st century. This is, this is old, old thoughts and old underpinnings for sure. Exactly, and so for me, over the years, it's just shifted very significantly. And I think it, it probably started like midway through college for me, this shift on a, on a real level and over the last five or six years or so but it becomes more of like a decided want to to find a black woman partner and end up with a black woman. And it's kind of like a twofold thing for me where part of it is self-serving or, or selfish almost in a way because it, it comes from like, from a partner perspective, I think uh, from an empathy standpoint, there's like a more full-bodied empathy that comes with obviously sharing the same race. Um, so that, that just is more attractive to me on a partnership level in terms of like a support system and being able to provide the type of, you know, support that I would need. And then, you know, the, the other side of it is kind of like, there are so many black women in my, my life, like my two older sisters, my, my two nieces that really just inspire me in so many ways. And for me, like, I, I know that, you know, there are so many, things in society constantly telling black women like they're not enough in in so many ways and I just don't really want to contribute to that 
it really. So I, I think that's what it comes from. And and I kind of feel like it's like I don't want to discourage interracial dating, right? Like because I'm literally the product of an interracial right. relationship. And also that sort of dating just really leads to more people of color, which <laughs> 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 I favor for. Um, yeah. So it's tough and it's tricky, but that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, let me jump. Uh, let me jump in. Um, for me, this conversation I think is guided in a lot of the same ways that these two dudes just, you know, sort of broke down. I also think, like at home, the Western can, I, I, because I'm straddling, you know, a lot of times this like Western conception of who I am with this Eastern conception of who my parents have for me and who I, and what I have actually started, you know, appreciating and leaning into more as I've gotten older. Um, those two things were at odds all the time. And there, there was no, that, that goes, that's no different for this conversation as well. In my home, there was an undermining of these like sort of Western tropes all the time. My mom and dad were, would regularly talk shit about like, and this sounds kind of crazy, but like they would regularly talk shit about like the girls that Western media would consider attractive. Uh -huh. My mom would be like, like, what the fuck? Like she looks like, the, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. would be this like six one supermodel with a flat, with flat abs and shit. And my mom would be like, ew. <laughs> my dad would be like, eh. So yeah, you were questioning it from 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 childhood because you saw them they, question it. They were, and I would be like, "The fuck you mean, ew?" Okay. Right? When I was like nine. Yeah. And then, like when I was like sixteen, it started becoming like, "Why are they saying ew?" Uh -huh. And then by the time I was eighteen, it started like clicking for me, like uh -huh. them growing up in a black country where there is no white beauty standard, yeah. even if the West, even if Western media leaks into, you know uh into ethiopia as well like sort of form the kind of people they are and it made me and it, you know and that and that, this goes for a lot of things but it made me sort of like appreciate the way that people are programmed and how stimulus sort of dictates you know the kind of people that we become to you know a very large extent and that always made and that made me want to interrogate at all times why it is that you know that i'm attracted to what i'm attracted to that i like what i like that i listen to what i listen that i'm you know, into what I'm into, whatever it may be. And that, that, that goes for this as well. So that process for me started around like 16, 17. Mm -hmm. I started college when I was 17. I'm young for our grade. Um, and that first year or whatever, right? Like you're, I wasn't maybe necessarily thinking about it as hard, but immediately like having access to, you know, freedom from a strict household, whether that meant like going out and partying with my friends or that meant dating. Right. was the very first time I really had to interact with it. And for me, like, it's not a dis it's not betrayal necessarily, but it is a disservice if you don't at the very least interrogate yourself and ask yourself why you're not dating a black woman as a black man. And that's just, and that may suck to hear, I'm, you know, I think for some folks, um, and this is not trying to make me sound like I'm some like lit ass nigga who only dates black women. It's not the case, uh, you know, like, uh, it's more so to just sort of have the conversation up front about like, systems of privilege systems of, of hierarchy you know what i mean and how like when we understand the way that the world reinforces sort of like the 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 coon narrative the black woman narratives that we always are like you know you know interacting with to like then not at least interrogate and you know why you're not dating a black woman i think would be is a disservice and is disrespectful to black women and your own blackness I don't think attractiveness is this 
this sort of stasis that I think a lot of people think of. Absolutely uh, it's not. You know, so because of the political nature of attraction, that interrogation of your own feelings and your own thought processes is possible. To and that appears to everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, and that it's possible to change, right? Like, Absolutely. I know for a fact that when I was in high school, I liked white girls. Because right. that's what was around me. That's what I saw. I liked some black girls. Obviously, like, you know, where I saw in the media, like, I saw Beyonce and Rihanna. I was like, okay, yeah. they're hot. Right. Right? Like, uh, but, I mean, my views on, like, women now, like, fucking totally different. Like, yeah. my views on who I find attractive, very different. And honestly, with growing racial tension in this country, especially in the current moment, I don't know. Like, for me personally, that sort of thing has become even more important. Yeah. Um, to sort of try to engage with what I find attractive and like the, the, the idea of like stepping out with a white woman right now for me just wouldn't work. Like no offense to, to juice, no offense <laughs> to really other fun. folks, but like, I just, that's just how I view it. Like for me, the political, the political nature of it would bring shame to me. Yeah. Um, I just feel wrong doing that right now. Like, and I'm not saying that like, and I know that sounds weird. I'm saying right now, as if like the moment is, you know, uh, what's dictating it but it is like yeah, that's just absolutely, that's absolutely. it's super like, we're, yeah we're in a moment in time where i feel like like n- niggas need to watch what they say and what they do and that goes for everyone and that includes us just because we're a part of the oppressed class doesn't exempt us from being like you know active participators in the perpetuation of shitty stuff towards black women so um that's where i'm at with it maybe a little more a little more harsh than the other fellas but that's just how i'm at yeah. That being said, I do think it's really interesting. Like there are interracial couples or couples, you know, of different backgrounds that like don't have these conversations and that kind of blows my mind. Like, I don't know how that's possible. I guess I, do, I don't know. That just, that's not really a question, but I think like that's something that I think about pretty often that like, especially if children are something that you and your partner are considering in the future, you know, like how could you be with someone and not very seriously interrogate that in any relationship, but especially if, you know, your experiences growing up have been so different and defined by race. I think when you're just like wholly subscribed to capitalism and only thinking about, you know, getting pics on a sandy beach uh, <laughs> over your over your, your fireplace mantle, you can ignore a lot. Beach with a fireplace? You know, you know what I'm talking about. Everyone's in a white button up, you know, you- With the white you know, But is it at the beach or are you in the living you know, room? shoes on the live, beach you got, you ass, nigga. Live, laugh, love right in there, you know, and, and whatever. I feel like no, you're right so at home. I know how to have your high school. I know how to have your high school. You watch <laughs> Bachelor, you go to bed, you know, you, 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 don't, okay. you, you can live a whole life. You're perfectly your, content. Your, you're perfectly content. jeans and mules. Stop subtweeting me. I don't appreciate this attack. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. Well, if you if you're listening to this and you're in an interracial relationship, please have the conversations as hard as they may be. Like you do it. <laughs> All right. So to kind of pivot away from like that topic or the topic of of interracial dating, I do. I would be remiss if I didn't mention like the reason I wanted you three specifically on one episode is because when I think about the incredibly low bar that exists for men, I think about where it should be. And it usually falls somewhere around who you three actually are. Basically, I think like the reason, and you've already kind of showcased this a little bit, but the reason that you are the people that you are is because you've like actively investigated your own masculinity and the ways in which like it could be or is toxic and pushed against it. So this is the part where I want to ask you, like, 
you know, having all three of you be, been in fraternities during your time in college, like speak to how you navigate either fraternity specifically or just like toxic masculinity generally? Yeah, I think a lot of it, I think you need to be willing to maybe make a situation awkward. You have to be willing to, to check people and you have to understand that that's a pretty meager and meek sacrifice, you know, relative to, to the understanding that men, you know, have been raping and killing women since the beginning of time. Yeah. If that's not kind of foundational to your understanding of everything that's going on, if you're not drawing a line from that into things that seem insignificant, then you're not doing, you know, as much as you should. Um, you're not really doing anything. Um, it's, 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 it's that willingness to, 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 to say, you know, that's not cool, you know, this needs to change, you know, and there's, I think there's ways to do it that can either spark insightful conversation or even maybe that means you need to cut someone out of your life straight up like maybe that is what that means um but being willing to do those things and understanding why it makes sense is important i remember you know um i was in a fraternity and there was there was you know maybe a story that was told that i think struck a tone that, that one member in particular and he was he was a little bit older he was in the columbia school of general studies but took issue with and, you know, in front of everybody, he says, yo, he just said, yo, that shit needs to stop. Like, y'all need to cut that out. And the whole room was dead silent, right? Yeah, that was enough. Pin drop because kind of in one singular moment, call it 30 seconds, one dude who, hmm. who kind of fundamentally understood this isn't okay. And also, yeah, at the time, he kind of did have, you know, a bit of rhetorical power and the ability to say something. But, uh, but for him to do that mm-hmm. was a sacrifice of sorts for him, which sounds weird, but it was a sacrifice of sorts for him right? Like the happy-go-lucky nature of a, of a boy's chat all of a sudden became, uh, what, what, who am I? What, what yeah. should I be doing? What can I be doing? And, and that was something that I think inspired a lot of people who had felt that way, right? And just forced a lot of people who didn't feel that way to check themselves. Yeah. Um, and so that's always stood out to me as, as, as kind of a, a, a seminal example of, you know, in a personal closed door you know, because you can say all, all, everything you want when it's public. You know what sounds good. But right. uh, I think when it's more difficult, per se, is, is when it's more real. Um, when it's just you and your boys. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, what I was going to say real quick is, like, Julia speaks to something that's super important, that is, like, improvement of these, like, shitty cultures and whatnot. But I also want to hold us accountable to, like, you know, what you sacrifice when you join a fraternity, no matter how much you can, you know, put some gold, you know, sprinkle some gold on it with like these like little tidbits and whatnot, you're sacrificing to certain cases. If your morals align with the ones that we've been espousing on this podcast, you're sacrificing those to a certain extent, but you can't escape that. Um, I think like we need to be very weary of, um, or very wary of um, gradualism and thinking that we can fix things from the inside. The institution's rotten. I don't, I don't want to like absolve us of like, you know, this, of, of the, of maybe some of the moral, um, the moral quagmires we found ourselves in on a weekly basis and whatnot. And also not just on a weekly basis, on a daily basis by being a part of the institution to begin with. We were three black dudes in, in predominantly white frats. Yeah. Frats that didn't, frats, many of which didn't consider us people until like 20 years ago. And my, and like our organizations at different campuses wouldn't even let us join. Yeah. So like, you know, we can, we can sort of hedge a little bit and be like, oh, look at all these black, like look at all the black people that were in the frats at Columbia though. Mm-hmm. Look at all the brown people that are in the frats at Columbia though. Like we can do all that all we want, but it just because we're black doesn't mean we're suddenly not doing the same shit 
right. to a certain extent at least that these white motherfuckers are doing at other schools, which is like objectifying women, talking shit about women, and yeah. in some horrible and horrific cases, you know, perpetuating abuse onto women. So, yeah. Um, yeah, like I think fundamentally, like I'm not proud of having done all that shit. Like I look back at that shit, I look at it and I say like, yeah, I had a lot of fun and I met some really cool dudes. Mm-hmm. But I think if you interviewed them separately, would tell you like, yeah, man, like this is essentially, this is inherently kind of a bad institution yeah. that I was a part of. <laughs> and also just really quickly, like, again, I want to like just stress, like, this is not a, 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 a white issue inherently necessarily. This is, a, this is a male problem. We've seen what just happened at Howard, where like, it's a complete, it's an all, obviously an all black school and like the sort of stuff that was coming out about their Greek organizations. So like, as black men, like, it's incumbent on us, not just to call out the sort of racist like stuff that we experience as black men from white men, but also to interrogate those within our own community that are doing fucked up shit. Because, you know, if it, if it can if it can happen to Howard, it can happen, you know, to us in any sort of organizational like you know capacity. So, gotta keep gotta keep ourselves, you know, on our p's and q's. You know, and like building off Yo's point, um, I think in the last in the last month at this point, call it a little over a month, you know, since the killing of George Floyd, right? Since protests have been, you know, proliferating and, and continuing across the country. I've been thinking a lot about why why it's happened, right? Like you had 40 million people unemployed, sure. Um, uh, and, and they were able to read and they were able to learn and they were able to get out in the streets and protest. But even on top of that, right, to, to take the same conversation you were having and just move it outside of fraternal context, but to Yub's point quite directly, you know, the, the, this, this is a threat because this is black men, right? Black men with black, strong black bodies that could rise up and with the support of people, you know, who have learned and just, you know, listen to the 1619 podcast, like yeah. understand, you know, finally that shit was fucked up. It's, it, who knows what's gonna come out of this, right? And to the point, incrementalism, gradualism, not the answer, who knows what, if anything, will come out of this. But I think the reason that this is happening right now is primarily because you know, it's scary. And, 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 you know, I don't know if folks have read the article. It, it was a very, you know, grabby and, and, and catchy title um, on, on a website called Very Smart Brothers. Um, and, and it was Black men are the white men of Black people. Hmm. Right? It was Black straight men are the white yeah. men of yeah. Black people. Wait, right? break, that, break that down. Yeah. It, it basically, it was just, it was just acknowledging, it was a Black man acknowledging his privilege within, you know, the, right. within blackness, right? Yeah. And that's not shit a lot of black n- the n- niggas want to hear. We're already yeah. here if we're keeping it a buck, right? Yeah. So, so that's like, like the, the stratification, because what I think about is, you know, like, to be honest, you know, the women's march, women's protests, important movements. We can talk for hours and days about its lack of intersectionality, white corporate feminism, all those things. Right. There are people far more qualified than anyone on this call you know, to speak to black women, yeah. i.e. black women, a group of black women primarily. But like, I think that the, the resounding sentiment around it, because there wasn't riots or burning was, that's cute. Yeah. I, it, yeah. The power in association a lot of times comes with the threat of violence. 100%. And actual uprising. And yeah. what enables, you know, that, right? So if we're talking about systems of oppression, I think that the conversation that, folks are kind of finally having a somewhat real sense about racism. I don't know when it's gonna happen, but we have never had it. We have never had it about misogyny and sexism in any real sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really appreciate you drawing that parallel. I feel like 
it's it's to have that conversation on a large scale like you said is like a reckoning and i feel like what a lot of white people or just non-black people are going through right now is that because you have it, it you know implied in having that final conversation for the reality of of where you are in the world it requires for you know for you to upset everything you know about yourself and your own privilege and where you're sitting and so it's a really difficult thing to do right and so i think that's part of the reason you know we we have white fragility et cetera, et cetera. but then if you if you flip it and if we're talking about gender you know with men it would also be a really difficult thing to to interrogate because it, it shakes to the core right like your conception of who you are yeah and and the, the actual physical you know threat Ooh, I hope you are still with us because in this next part, Yub, Greg, and Julius really break it down. If we haven't already covered it, what are some things that you would like people to absolutely not do? And it can be with regard to gender, race, anything. You know, there's something that I saw the other day and I put it up on my Instagram story as I want to do these days. At, was, what is your name? At, I forgot. At, at Gregarious oh. underscore D. How could I forget? Yes. I'm lit. I, I put it up because I, I thought it was just so well said and it, it wasn't really anything new or or overly profound, but I just thought it was well worded and it essentially got to the idea that like when you're debating, quote unquote, uh, something with someone who it more, you know, in a very real way directly impacts them and does not impact you personally. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that is inherently going to take an emotional toll on the, the person who it does directly impact. And so when their response is then more uh, emotional in nature and, right. and almost, you know, seeming, you know, frantic or, or whatever word you want to use, I think a lot of people see that response and think that because they're not getting that way in the debate that they're, you know, a beacon of some heightened objectivity and that they're appealing to like greater reason and I think you're you're approaching the discussion from the wrong angle you're approaching the discussion as more of like a quote-unquote you you yeah you have distance from the, the the topic of the conversation so it's a position of privilege to even be able to distance yourself in the first place oh you're speaking exactly to like my whole life exactly. <laughs> absolutely do not treat conversations regarding race and or racism or conversations regarding gender and or sexism as academic discourse especially when the issue does not directly worsen your experience and you're talking to people whose experience it does directly worsen that in my mind is I like to call playing yakubian devil's advocate <laughs> the, the, the <laughs> yeah Yo, it's Yub. Y'all might be wondering what Yakub or Yakubian means. Simply put, it's just a term for white people. The phrase comes from the African-American political and religious sect known as the Nation of Islam, who believe the creation of the white man stems from a scientific experiment done 6,600 years ago by a despotic and evil Yakub, or Jacob, and yes, it's the one from the Bible, where via eugenics, black traits were bred out of his followers, yielding a, quote, new race of white people, and their brutal creation process being the psychological basis for their future violence and domination of black people. It's an essential teaching to understanding the NOI's conception of the devil. So while we're not members of the NOI, nor do we adhere to their ideology, the phrase clearly possesses incredible comedic properties that have been wielded by many in the black community, most famously the comedic duo of Deezus and Mero, to address white folks in an incisive yet humorous way. 
we honor this tradition by using the phrase liberally in our day-to-day lives with our white friends or in reference to white people to laugh through the pain and constantly harangue white supremacy. Yeah. Um, I think like one of the main things that I've experienced in the past couple months has been uh, the outpouring of quote unquote uh, affection and checking in on me when I don't know half of you niggas. Like, I just really want people to sit down and like fucking think about like what guilt they're absolving by texting the one black dude in their fucking phone book that they haven't spoken to or checked in on in any context or, you know, for months or years on end. Like, you're not my homie. I don't fuck with you. Like, do not contact me to make yourself. (laughs) Now, some of you, I do fuck with you. You are my homies and I appreciate you reaching out, but also you too, like fucking like interrogate why you feel guilty. You feel mm-hmm. guilty because you don't do shit. You're all talk. That's really, I think, where a lot of it comes from. And I think people realize that, like, a lot of their uh, lives have been, you know, sort of sort of hunky-dory and, like, just been fine. And then when shit invariably pops off in the country, they're like, fuck, man. Like, I haven't done enough. So mm-hmm. what can I do to make myself – to make myself – I don't even think about it this way, per se, but, like, it ends up being, like, how can I make myself feel better by engaging in some sort of praxis where – I'm reaching out to a black person. Right. And it's like, I'm not your fucking, you know, for lack of a better term, I'm not your Negro. Like, I'm not that, I'm not your magic coon who's going to fucking make you feel all better, give you the right words, give you the right, like, give you the right fucking spiel Mm -hmm. on some Kawhi to break down, like, your feelings (laughs) for you. Like, fuck out of here, dog. Like, I'm not, that's not my job. So don't talk to me. (laughs) Okay. Like, let's start there. Don't yeah, talk. Like, so don't invite me on your podcast. Nah, nah, you might make it. Shut up. Uh, um, <laughs> no, but I, I, I really do. I really do get frustrated with that because I think a lot of black people put in, and I know we talk, we talked about this. Other people talk about this, but like emotional labor and whatnot. Right. But it's not just emotional labor. It's like it's not just emotional labor to me. It's just like what annoys me isn't the fact that I'm doing it and I'm and like it's making me work. It's that like you haven't taken even five minutes to think about why you're reaching out in the first place. Mm-hmm. Like, cause if you, because you're not dumb either. Like, like that's the, that's the thing. Like when people are like, teach me, teach me. And it's like, dog, like I'm not inherently smarter than you. I'm just fucking black. So I have to think about it. Like you don't. <laughs> so maybe, so maybe like you take a moment, be outside of yourself, have some empathy and think about like why you, a white person are reaching out to me to, like, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that shit, that shit fucking irritates me. So don't do that shit. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's not to say I haven't had productive conversations with people who've reached out to me. I'm just saying when I get literally over 80 different messages first week after George Floyd's death, I'm like, bruh, come on. Like it can't be all of you. Like you can't be so dumb to think that you're the first one to send this message to me. That's wild. Also another absolutely not that I think that I just thought like thought of is just like the idea, like a lot of people say shit like, things are worse now or think it's such a crazy time we're like this isn't crazy this is the first rational like thing right like you should not be saying that like this is or in any way implying or implicating that this is worse or more wild than like the gaslighting that's taken place for the last four years yeah it is it is worse and more wild for them because before (laughs) (laughs) like like for their comfort and convenience level it's worse that type of shit really pisses me off because a lot of times it's these like niggas that are like and and by niggas as yub says it's yakubians usually 
but it's like people who are like quote unquote down conceptually until diverse leadership is actually introduced into their day to day. And then to fully accept that leadership and to like respect and follow that leadership requires you to question and unlearn a lot of really ingrained shit that people just aren't willing or interested in, in questioning and unlearning. And so it becomes like a, I don't want to put that effort in, so I'm just going to stop short, but like, at least I like can, can justify it to myself that like, I don't have overt intolerance towards this person. It's nasty. It's truly like a, I think that this association is truly like, if you take this logic train to its last stop, it's like an association of blackness with just dirtiness. Choo-choo. Right. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's like, this is, this is sullied now. This is, this is really what it is, is this yeah. super fucking whack way of like operating in this world where you know all the right buttons to push to make sure niggas never come at you for being quote unquote problematic or like quote unquote racist when in reality dog you are the problem yeah. i don't interact with white conservatives dog like those aren't i don't yeah that's irrelevant and so i know on my day-to-day who's my issue and football plays in on such a real level like i don't work in like finance or some of the more stuffy corporate cultures but even just in tech like it's always so fucking white and i'm just like and and at my current company it's so fucking white and like my hair right now is longer than i've ever had my hair and like i've definitely thought during this calendar year about cutting it and i'm just like it's long like it's starting to become more work and more maintenance but i actually have form such a like love affair with my hair as it continues to grow out and it's not just the hair it's like what keeping the hair yeah represents to me it's like i'm sick of this tired shit of like when our hair gets too long it's not appropriate for the workplace anymore fuck you nigga like i'll show you how it is you know what i mean like i i will literally do it and like it will be palatable to you because I'm a clean ass nigga with, with steez. Like I'm not gonna <laughs> out here looking like a scrub. My shit gonna look clean. And so that's been part of it is like, no, nah, I'm gonna keep letting my shit grow out. Like I like my shit. And like y'all are gonna if you're if you don't like it, you're gonna fucking get used to it and at least grow to like be comfortable with it. Craig, your hair's lit. But Yum's point made me think back to my first job out of college. And I did, I worked on a trading floor at a bank. And I was, at the time, uh, the youngest person on that floor, one of the tallest people on that floor, and the only black person. So like, I would stroll on in and like stick out like a sore fucking thumb, right? Like, and it was at first really uncomfortable when you're like, whatever, entering like the corporate world and just trying not to get fucking fired. But you know, once like, I actually was like, okay with like, just being there and understood that like, whatever, like, that's a whole other conversation about, like, feeling worthy or feeling smart enough to be all these white people. Like, I didn't mind the dickheads who didn't look at me and just went about their way, but the dude who took his hour commute in from Connecticut and was listening to the Beastie Boys and sees me and is like, yo, what's up, man? And, like, tries to dab me up. That is a lot more bothersome. And, yo, take your Ferragamos and keep it moving. I would, I can get through my day and you can get through your day and we're going to get our paychecks in two weeks because we're all subjects to this shit. But Carl, when I'm just trying to get my cashews from the pantry and you walk up to me 
trying to chat shit about the new future album like that that's really fucking annoying because it's like if you respond positively then they get to walk away and be like see look i'm friends with the black guy because they're like oh look he likes when i converse with him let me continue (laughs) hey everyone greg here With us nearing the end of the episode, we'd probably be remiss if we didn't add some context to the harsh language we've been using here. Clearly, I just made a joke that featured the word coon, and there have been multiple other moments during this episode when we've used slurs like nigger and coon that clearly have a long and ugly history of being used as hate speech to demean, degrade, and oppress black people. While we recognize that this can be jarring and that the quote-unquote taking back of this language is a contentious topic, the three of us are of the mindset that when non-black people get offended by black people using this kind of language, they don't really have solid ground to stand on in that debate. And so we see it as an envelope worth pushing. And yes, if I'm being fully honest, we do derive a bit of perverse pleasure from making Yakubians uncomfortable. This is why you hear us laughing and using these words unabashedly at times. And with that, I'm going to send it back over to Yub. Like, if you have no black fucking friends, ask yourself, like, why do I not have black friends? I'm not saying go out there, go make a black friend to make a black friend either. That's right, corny. Right, right, Don't right. do that shit. But, but like, definitely, definitely ask yourself. Look around who you surround yeah, yourself with. And also, I would say this one last thing to black, to black men as well. Like, a lot of black men have a lot of black guy friends and no black woman friends. Like, that's something you need to think about as well. Um, I know I get, I know my I know my black female friends have called me out for that in the past, and I think that's an important thing to remember. Like when you're when you're saying black this black that, and you have no black female friends or black woman friends, like that's that's you know yep. that's like that's a, I'm giving you a little stink eye a little bit, and I'm giving myself a stink eye too. It's like that's not, yeah. You yeah. Know. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, it, it's it's super important. Like that that's been something that's been on my mind a lot recently. Is like. Because, okay, like, clearly, like, I'm already, like, rooting for everybody black on Samisa Ray, but Shout out, Issa. really to, like, substantively try to further that action of supporting black women, black LGBTQIA plus community folks, like, just the people that are black and even more marginalized, you know, than black men, obviously. So that that's just been on my mind a lot in recent months and i think like it's for for niggas like us that are kind of looking for what is our next frontier to try and focus on i think that it really starts with that um but that being said thanks guys bye Bye. thanks for tuning in to episode two of absolutely not For my non-black listeners, I want to share a reminder that I got recently from Yub, which was that elevating black voices or making space for them doesn't mean you get to stay silent and call it a day. In that silence, we have to push ourselves to continually think critically. Then, we have to act. If we're genuinely committed to being anti-racist, we have to figure out how to take action on a daily basis, whether it's tough conversations with friends and family, putting our money where our mouth is, or taking to the streets. What's been particularly helpful for me is figuring out not only what privilege I can leverage, but what skill set I already have that I can capitalize on. Look for ways to be anti-racist in what you already do. Integrate it into your day-to-day. And absolutely do not expect your black friends to teach you. Thanks again for listening. Nos vemos next time on Absolutely Not. Absolutely not.